Hello, welcome to the Capital Employed Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Gary Moglioni, the fund manager of the Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trust. In this episode, Gary talks about how they have constructed the portfolio for both growth and income. He also talks about two companies with high dividend yields that he also feels have great long-term growth potential. I really enjoy listening to him and I think you will too. Before we jump into this episode, do make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Okay, on with this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Gary. Hi, Gary. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Can you shed some light on Momentum Multi-Asset Value and what is the uh, objective? This is obviously a multi-asset portfolio. It's in a closed-ended structure, so it's an investment trust structure. We think we're doing things quite different to a a vanilla multi-asset trust. Uh, The objectives of the trust are CPI plus six. Now, obviously, we're not going to deliver that in an exact sense on a calendar basis, but that's over the long term. So over the long term, we think we can deliver CPI plus 6% per annum. And the objective is the fund is to split that roughly 50-50 between income and growth. So we're looking for investments that can provide us with some capital growth and, and, and a reasonable amount of income. The yield is currently the, the trust is currently yielding a little bit less than, than 4%. I think it's around 3.7% at the moment. And we do that in a, in a different way as well. We do a hybrid model. So we have some direct equity investments, and then we use third-party investments for certain parts of the market. Our direct equity investments are all in the UK. So that's our home market. We think we know it well. We know the companies well, and we can add a lot of value. But what we've got to accept is we can't be experts in every market around the world in every asset class. So what we're trying to do then is find the best of breed managers around around the world for our overseas equity exposure, for our fixed income exposure, and for what we call our specialist assets exposure, which again is another kind of different part to other uh, others of our competitors. The specialist assets exposure is is, is investment trusts, it's close-ended vehicles, and it's primarily focused on uh, a few key areas, which is infrastructure, property, specialist financials, which is royalties, direct lending, that's that type of thing also private equity. So we don't follow that kind of traditional 60-40 model of an old kind of balanced fund. We think this is a more modern interpretation of what a multi-asset portfolio, uh, how it should be structured, how it should be set up. And we think it's got a good balance between capital growth and income. And for the equity section, uh, what type of businesses do you look to invest in? We're value managers, so we have a strict valuation focus so the, the, first, the first thing we'd be looking for is, is there a, a compelling valuation on this investment? Now, we don't necessarily disregard any sections or sectors of the market, but we probably, you know, in, in, in recent years, we've had quite a low or if not little or no allocation to things like uh, commodity-driven investments. So where the, uh, a volatile commodity price has a, has a huge influence on, on the price of the company. Also banks, because they're so difficult to actually get down to the, you know, to understand exactly what's going on on the balance sheet and to, to value it appropriately. So we probably had low allocations to those type of companies. Key, the key aspect would be a compelling valuation argument. We also use our size to go down the market cap scale. 
So you should not see the kind of popular name. So, for example, in our equity, UK equity portfolio, I think there's only currently two FTSE 100 stocks, which is LNG, and I think NNG is in the FTSE 100 as well. So we use our size to go down the market cap scale as well. So you should see a, a predominantly mid-cap bias uh, in the portfolio as well. What type of valuation metrics do we look for? Simple metric, price to book, price to sales. Uh, and we're looking for to, to get the, what the best quality bang for our book is for, for, those, for those low valuations. So it will encompass all, all sectors within the market, but with a, a kind of a lower exposure to commodities and banks. And are you still finding good value in the, the UK market? Yes. Uh, and each day as the UK goes up, probably to a lesser degree. But uh, last year, we were extremely bullish on the UK. Uh, I think there was headlined articles that was the world's most hated market. And probably rightly so, if you take a short-term view, you had, you had Brexit that had been you know, a, a dark cloud over the UK market since 2016. And that had caused a huge disparity in valuations between the the kind of global exporters and the domestic focused businesses. So there was a there was a massive valuation opportunity for UK stocks over the past you know three, four years. And then COVID came and compounded that because the initial initial COVID response in the UK wasn't the best. You know, we were one of the worst affected countries by COVID. So you, so last year you had these two huge kind of factors discounting the UK market. So if you think on a short-term basis, you should have avoided the UK market at all costs. But we went overweight last year, and that's paid off handsomely for us now and the returns that we've had you know, since since the vaccin- vaccination announcement. Uh, the UK now is a market where people have realised they've had a, a, a large underexposure to. There's some great companies there. The Brexit deal has been signed, which reduces uncertainty massively. And the COVID response now has actually turned to probably one of where we were we were lacking to one where we're a leader, where the vaccination response has been much stronger. And we're actually ahead of most countries and regions around the world in terms of our vaccination programme. So we should open up and we are opening up quicker than, than a lot of countries as well. So what were severe headwinds for the UK in previous years and last year in particular have suddenly turned into a, a tailwind. So we're, we're currently riding that tailwind and, and, and it's, it's paying off handsomely for us. But yeah, I do agree that valuation that that valuation gap is, is closing but i think the uk still has a, a long way to go because it, it was discounted so heavily against its global peers so can we delve into your portfolio a bit can you talk us through two or three companies within your portfolio that you feel have good long-term potential and, and what was the thesis for investing yeah so i'll probably split it between so I've got, first i'll go for one of our uk equity holdings it's uh, conduit which was an ipo from last year, I think it was October, November is when it IPO'd. And this is a, a vehicle that was set up last year by a number of industry professionals. So I think the senior managing team of average experience in the reinsurance industry is something like 30, 40 years. And as with most industries, this is quite cyclical. So you have uh, periods where you know the premiums that you charge are high and that attracts capital. And then losses can be, can you can have bad years of bad losses and capital gets tied up. So there's kind of swings and roundabouts and a lot of cyclicality in the market in terms of the premiums that you charge and the losses that you potentially incur. And for a number of years, uh, the rates have been coming down. So the premiums you charge for reinsurance have been coming down. And that's meant that the industry hasn't been that attractive to us. But what the management team of, of Conduit set up IPO last year, the reasons why they did was because that environment is, is changing now. You've had a number of years of significant capital losses or significant losses in the reinsurance industry. 
So that ties up the capital for a number of years and it reduces the risk appetite uh, of, of underwriters as well. You've had a lot of capital in previous years that's come in that softened the, the, the premiums that you charge. Looking backwards, the reinsurance industry hasn't been a great place to invest. If you look back over the, a longer period, one of the best times to invest was probably the post 9-11 period. So you had huge losses in, in, in 9-11, premiums rose. There wasn't a, a, an abundance of capital and it was an attractive returns environment. And I think we're coming to a similar type of environment now. So what conduits have done is IPO raised about a billion. They now have a nice clean balance sheet. Some of those catastrophe losses that have been incurred by a lot of the reinsurance over the past four or five years, their balance sheet is clean. They're not exposed to it. The peers have got capital tied up in, in, in a lot of, lot of claims. You've got a depleting capital base. You've got... Got the, there's been some potential under-reserving as well by insurance companies in previous years. So this this all creates a... And then there's loss uncertainty as well with the global pandemic last year. So I know there's a lot of legal cases, et cetera, and, and, and uh, claims against regarding COVID. So this, create, this, this creates a perfect storm for a hardening of, of premiums, a depletion of capital. Conduits are coming into with a clean balance sheet, a billion of capital. They should be able to charge decent premiums. And they're going to pay a dividend yield of about 5.5% as well, which will be uncovered for year one as they build up the, the book. They've got a, a healthy management incentive plan, which has, has helped them to attract top kind of un, un, underwriting talent. The business is going to be uh, based out in Bermuda. And we think it's going to be a slow burner. So they've only started writing business this year. But I think this is the, we're entering the market at, a, at a, an attractive point in the cycle. So long term, we'll be able to sit and patiently wait with the 5.5% yield. The management team as well have also a good track record of building businesses up and then selling them on to larger peers. The IPO was done at a price to book of one, and a lot of the peers have traded on average around 1.6 over, over recent years. We tend to be quite contrarian we, we can, to, the, to the market cycle, so we'll enter the market when we think it's the most attractive. But when, if you're looking over a short-term view, you, know, you could see that when I look backwards, you could see that there's been hot problems. But for us, this is one that will be a slow burner it will generate a decent yield over the short to medium term and we'll, we'll hopefully have a decent amount of capital appreciation over future years. That's the UK equity one. And then maybe one of a go into one of our specialist assets, so in the investment trust market. So again, it's one we invested in, I think it was late last year. So it's Gore Street Energy. And this is energy, an energy storage business. So if you think about the national grid, and our energy supply, historically, it's been coal and nuclear have been the major contributors to, to, to power generation. There's a big shift going on to switch to, from, from that to, to solar and wind. And we've been beneficiaries of that because we've been invested in, in things like uh, Greencoat UK Wind, JLEN, Sequoia, a lot of infrastructure businesses in the UK that have got exposure to renewables. And that's become an attractive place to, to invest now. We were quite early. A lot of those trusts have gone to decent premiums now. So we've made great yields over the past few years and we've made good capital returns and we're starting to rotate now and energy storage is another one where we think this is this is a, a good place to be so what's going to happen going forward demand is increasing uh, you've got electric vehicles that will be rolled out in the, over the next decade or in, in, they're, they're already there but in terms of on, on mass most of the majority of the new power generation in, in the UK and globally is, is solar and wind that's great it's great for the environment but it's not good for the if you're managing the grid and you need to maintain maintain stability on the grid. Demand is always there. Demand will spike at times, but solar and wind is very unpredictable on, on how they generate energy. You can't control the wind. You can't control the sun. 
you're going to increase solar and wind massively over the next few decades, how is the grid going to cope? One component of that will be energy storage. So it's essentially large batteries that sit between the power generators and the grid, and they can store that energy and they can release it at opportune times and they can create stability in the, in the grid. These businesses will, will build battery parks around the, the country. They'll either buy them developed or they'll develop them themselves. Do a full due diligence and target an IRR of around 10 to 12%. And then you can make money by kind of a number of different ways. So you've got grid balancing. So literally second by second, if there's a spike in demand, then the energy storage, the batteries can, can feed into the, into the grid. And, and when there's excess of supply, it can take it, up, take it out again. So if you think, for example, when the World Cup halftime, World Cup final halftime, it sees some of the largest surges in, in demand because everybody goes and puts the kettle on. I think they clapped for the NHS last year as well. There was surges in demand because everyone was outside clapping for the NHS and then they'd come inside, probably put the heating on, put the TV on and put the kettle on. And there's, there's spikes in, in, in demand. So these energy storage parks can help manage that, that shift and that, that balance of it within the grid. Also the peak shifting, which is contracts to say, okay, well, you buy energy, you take out the store energy when, when demand is low and feed it back into the, the grid when, when demand is high. So again, it softens those those peaks and troughs of demand. And then another another way of them making money is trading. So there's a wholesale wholesale prices of, of, of energy, electricity, and you can buy when when it's extremely low, store it, and then sell back into the the system when it's high. So we think this is this is a great investment. It's got a yield of around seven percent, which is great for the income side of our of our fund. Uh, its ESG credentials are really strong because it's helping facilitate the you know the increase in renewables. And we think it's got different performance drivers. For, you know, particularly last year was a good example when when things all converge and become highly correlated at the same time. Then this has got different drivers. This is more about energy demand and supply and, and the price of energy and, and how you manage those contracts and, and how you put that your battery storage facilities into the grid. So we like that diversification. It's maintained its dividend throughout 2020, which on the equity side, you know, you can argue that dividends have been decimated last year and are only just starting now. To return to normal, so investments like 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 Gold Street Energy are provided a good kind of solid and diversified income stream and the potential for capital growth, and that's really helped us last year as well. Because on the equity side, when dividends have been slashed, I think historically in in, in our trust, UK equities was around thirty percent of income contribution, specialist assets was around thirty thirty percent, and then the remaining forty percent was probably fixed income and overseas equity. Now, last year, because equities cut, dividends were cut so severe on, on equities, which rightly so, there's a period of extreme uncertainty. Specialist assets actually held its own, and it's increased to around 40%, 50% contribution of our, of our dividend yield. So it's helped, it's helped maintain our, our dividend stability. We've maintained our dividend right the way through, through COVID. The ability to do that is because we're in a closed-ended structure and because we've invested in, in these specialist assets that have maintained and even grown the dividend. I think the majority of our specialist assets investments have either maintained or grown the dividend over 2020, which is which is impressive given what's happened in the in the equity markets. So they're probably two, maybe not the most exciting and, and, and glamorous of, of investments that we've got, but we think they're solid. We think they're diversified from the rest of the portfolio. We think they'll pay a, a, a decent yield and, and a consistent yield, and they'll provide us with with a decent amount of, of capital growth over the, the coming years. Because we are long-term investors, we don't want to make a, a fast buck and then move on. We, we want to buy and hold things for the long term. 
you want to buy them at opportune moments and sell them when when sentiment is, is extremely positive in them and you know demand is high then then we'll probably exit the, these type of investments okay yeah thanks for sharing uh, those two gary they both seem uh, very interesting opportunities can i ask you are you a keen reader and if so have, have you read a book recently that's really stood out for you I am a keen reader, but I've got two children, which means that I don't get to read as much as I like to. I, re- I tend to quite like the behavioural side of things, so I do read a lot of behavioural finance, behavioural economics books, so I like things like Freakonomics, uh, Nudge, Thinking Fast and Slow, all those type of ones. But one, if it's one that kind of had an effect on I me, mean, one was Outliers, I can't remember the author's name, which was a, st- a guy studying in people who were exceptional in their field and how that came about. You know, is it is it is it is it genetics? Is it skill? The finance are really interesting. There was things like professional footballers. Um, there was a study on the birth dates of, of professional footballers, and I think it was at the Irish FA. There was a huge skew, and the skew, I think, in, in Ireland, it was the cutoff for the FA for uh, playing an under sixteen, under seventeen was was a calendar year. So they found that the majority of successful footballers that went on to be professionals there was a huge skew towards people who were born in the first few months of the year, uh, from January, February, March, et cetera. And then there was a huge negative skew in people born in like November, December. It studies how that's, why that is and how that's come about. And it's because if you start off as a, a, in a under six team and one kid, one kid is born in January and one kid is born in December and the cutoff is year-end, that kid, the January-born kid, kid is the biggest, the strongest, the fastest. He's nearly a year older. So that means he look, he sticks out, he, he or she sticks out and, and looks like a better player. But really, it's it's still a year older than, than the, the peers. And then that puts them, that makes them more confident. That puts them in the better teams. It gets them access to the better coaches. And then they move on then on, on a trajectory that's different to the, the to the children who are born in the the low ones. Now this isn't an exact science. It, it's just it's just a, a bias and a tilt. Uh, it's the same with schools. This cut off for the academic year. We found the qualifications and exam results skewed towards kids that were born you know that were born to just after the cutoff so the oldest kids in the year and again it's the same as the football thing kids have if, if children have a, a poor experience early on the confidence is hit versus the kids who are potentially almost a year older they get good exam grades they move ahead and they go follow a, a different trajectory so that was one that kind of resonated with me and it's something that's always stuck me and it's trying to understand why people succeed how they succeed and can you skew the the probability and in your favour. Uh, so luckily I've got two, two children now who are one of the oldest in their academic year. So that, that's probably a result of, of reading that book before the children were born. Where can listeners go to find out more about your investment trust? We have a website, so momentum.co.uk. And then that has all of our products across the company. So we run a lot of multi, multi-asset products and some single strategy products as well. But the trust, you can click straight on. So I think when you log on to momentum.co.uk, there's an option there to click on the trust. It has its own microsite within that with all fact sheets, reporting accounts, etc. So all the information will be available there at the click of a button on the website. Okay, Gary, that's brilliant. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to listen to you. It's been a pleasure to come on.